This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. We understand that some of our opinions will not be shared with many people and hope you can still bear with us in order to hear amazing Wisconsin-based stories. We are not licensed therapists or able to give legal advice by any means. Our show notes will provide all of our source materials included for each episode. Now Now on on to to the the show. Welcome back to All the Sins of Wisconsin. I am Fallon and I'm here with Mims. How are you? I'm doing great. Even though it's so cold out, I cannot handle it. It's so cold, but you're super cute in your little Halloween outfit. Thank you. I have my little Halloween turtleneck. Can't go wrong. Yeah, super cute. Thank you. Ah. We had some great conversations while we waited for the technological issues to work themselves out. I feel like it's got to happen like every other week or it's not our podcast. Right. (laughs) Even though I don't like it. Agreed. Okay, anything new or anything you'd like to share? Um, No, I don't think so. I'd like to thank that message that we got. We got one last week and we got one this week. So that's two weeks in a row where we got like a lovely message i love that so thank you for that yes you guys are wonderful and we love you yes you guys keep us going on the days when nothing's working on those days i feel like we get those messages and i'm like oh my god i needed that like people do love us yeah exactly so it's definitely encouraged and it's definitely well received absolutely and you are first, my dear. Yay! All right, let's jump right in. Okay. This week, I am continuing with spooky season, and I'm discussing the historic Kiwani Hotel, which was formerly known as the Karsten Hotel, and it is located in Kiwani, if you didn't figure that out by the name. <laughs> okay, so this place is supposed to be the most haunted hotel in Wisconsin, which... There's a little competition. There's a lot okay. of haunted hotels in Wisconsin, but mm-hmm. I'll tell you this story this week, and then next week I'll do a different one, and we'll see okay. what you think. I like that. So many people have seen spirits at this hotel that even the owners don't deny that the place is haunted. They're like, yeah, we're a haunted hotel. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I wonder if there's like a like certified haunted thing that you could receive you know how like restaurants there get like should be yeah like restaurants get like the golden fork or whatever yeah they should get like the golden ghost or something they should <laughs> we should make that up tm tm <laughs> right that could be from all the sins of wisconsin yeah but oh that'd be so fun <laughs> i think we're noodling something out right now we are <laughs> all right so this hotel It is three floors and has 23 rooms that you can rent out right now. So we could go stay there. And give it the golden ghost. With the ghosts, we could hang out. We could give them awards. (laughs) (laughs) I want to see who's the ghostiest ghost. (laughs) I love that. So it was built in 1912 and constructed of brick. A lot of the features in the hotel, like the front desk and the wood floors and the ballroom and the carved staircase, are still all original. And I love that. Oh, I love yeah. like the old-fashioned hotels and houses. The, all the old um, architecture is yeah. so beautiful. Yeah, just people took so much time to do things back then. Yeah, absolutely. Could you imagine somebody carving a staircase right now? No, I, I, no, no. I wouldn't have the time. <laughs> To even think about it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So prior to this hotel being built, there was another structure in the same spot. That one was built in 1858 and was called the Steamboat House. And that building had a large ballroom that had been used for all kinds of community events and even acted as the courthouse in Kiwani until 1873. Cute. Over the next years, the hotel changed hands in... uh, changed hands and names a few different times until it was ultimately purchased by William Karsten in November of 1911. 
Soon after he purchased the hotel, though, a fire took place in the kitchen. It was deemed an accident. However, Mr. Carson did receive a large payout from the insurance company, and he decided to rebuild. So he decided, this time we're going to build it out of brick. Mm -hmm. It was a wise choice. Right. So during 1912, Carson rebuilt this into a luxurious three-story brick hotel with a large lobby and sitting room, a fabulous bar, a huge dining room and ballroom, and a basement, costing a whole $60,000. Mm. Just a lot back in 1912. Right. That doesn't mean shit to us now. Now you can buy a, a small car. <laughs> <laughs> you can buy a trailer on a small plot. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Some of the money that he got was raised through private investors. So then the hotel was managed by Karsten's company, Karsten Hotel Company. And he named this hotel the Hotel Karsten. When it first opened, it had 52 different rooms for guests. Hmm. And it opened back up on Valentine's Day of 1913. It had a large dining room that could feed 90 people at once. And the bar had its own entrance and was located... In the ground floor basement. So, uh, be nice and proper upstairs and downstairs we're partying. <laughs> <laughs> As we should. As we should. William Karsten was a retired sea captain and he had made his money by establishing Paps Brewing Company in Kiwani. Wow. And he was also the mayor of Kiwani. Like, what doesn't he do? He was doing everything. <laughs> he still is. Right. <laughs> He lived until he was 78, and he died of a heart attack in his hotel suite on January 4th of 1940. People say that William Carston was really outgoing, just happy, loved life, until his wife, Catherine, the love of his life, died in 1928. Then he was lonely and not very happy. And the only things that really made him happy was looking out at the view of the Kiwani Harbor in Lake Michigan from his suite, which was rooms 205 through 210. And he also liked sharing his memories with guests while sitting in his favorite chair in the fancy lobby. Oh. But most of all, he enjoyed hanging out with his special grandson, um, William Billy Karsten III. So we'll call him Billy from now on. Okay. So William Karsten... Retired, and then um, William Carson Jr. started running the hotel, so he always had his son, Billy, with him. So it was like Billy and Grandpa time at the hotel. Love that. So cute. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They said that the two of them were kindred spirits. So three weeks after William Carson died, young Billy became very ill, and he died too. Oh, shit. So he died from meningitis at the age of five. That's tragic. Mm-hmm. So now we'll get into the entities that live at the hotel. Okay. The first one is the housekeeper, Agatha. In 1921, Agatha was raped by a drunk neighbor near her father's farm. And as a result of this attack, she had a child. Ugh. And her parents raised this child with their other seven kids. So that was... Nice of them, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I don't... Ugh, the baby. No. I I hate that that happened and right. that something... Oh, yeah. It's just such a... It's such a... I don't even know how to feel because obviously the baby has nothing to do with it. Yeah, but still, that's but that, I like mean, a constant reminder. Every day you gotta look yeah. and, yeah, that's part of that person. Mm-hmm. And back then, I don't think there's any therapy. Mm -hmm. She's had all this trauma. It doesn't say that anyone was ever brought to justice for her, Ugh. for the crime. And then she had the baby at home. And then her family needed money, so she needed to go to work. Mm. So she became a housekeeper at Hotel Karsten from 1925 to 1937. And she was very valued as the housekeeper, which was a really good, positive escape for her from her really sad life thus far. Right, because that made her feel like she was valued and needed. Mm -hmm. and, and It was a very fancy hotel, right. and she had a position there, mm -hmm. and so it was a different crowd. Right, yeah. yeah. So, oftentimes, 
This is what people say about ghosts. People who have experienced heartbreak or they lose their loved ones or they have an unrequited love spend a lot of the time after they die in the place where this happened, hoping that their beloved will find them there or that the person that rejected them in real life, well, in like the living life or whatever, Mm -hmm. (laughs) will, will eventually love them in the afterlife. Okay. So it's said that Agatha was in love with William Carson Sr. Oh. Mm-hmm. But he didn't love her back. Mm-hmm. Because he loved his wife. But I'm sure after his wife died, she want, was probably caring for him. Right. Thought maybe she'd be the new wife. But it didn't work out that way. He's like, no, I just miss my wife. Oh, See, I want that kind of love. That even when I'm gone, he's like, I will never marry again. Yeah, I'm moving on. Oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like Jake will, too, but... I I don't think so. I think he would. I think he would be like that. I hope so. If you're listening to this, I hope you're heartbroken. He would be the way he looks at you. Mm. No, I can't see it. Like, you can never take her place. Yep. Yep. So, Agatha was given a room on the third floor, room 310. And some say that she hung herself in 1937, but the truth is that she left the Hotel Carson to take care of her alien father back on the family farm, and then she stayed and lived there until she died really young from cancer in 1954, and she never married. People think that she just had a negative feeling towards men in general. I, can't I, don't, blame, I don't blame her. <laughs> yeah. And... She probably never got over this love that she had for William Carston. I can see, especially if he, like, took good care of her and was kind to her. And he didn't want anything from her. Right. Yeah. So, she's her, like, that was probably, like, the ultimate love. Right. Like, he doesn't want anything. He's just good to me for no reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I lost my place. <laughs> <laughs> That's worse. Yeah. Okay, so she still haunts her room. Some people say that she did hang herself there. So it's a dispute of whether she hung herself there and her spirit's still there in the room because she hung herself there Mm -hmm. or if she really died at home. I feel like how would you not remember if there was a person that hung themselves in a place like that? I feel like that should be a little cut and dry. Yeah, I think it's like she probably died at home, but... It's a better story to say. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So then let's go to the ghost of William Carston. He still lives there. He never wanted to leave his hotel. He's going to be there forever. Right. So he's described as being friendly and gentle, but sometimes he does get upset. Okay. Like a normal person. Sure. When he gets angry or annoyed or frustrated... He moves the furniture around in his room, but he does that when nobody's there. Like, when there's no people in the room with him. So he's just, like, upset, but he doesn't want to scare people. Yeah. I like that. (laughs) Right? (laughs) He's like, I'm gonna be upset, but I won't, like, disturb you. Right, I'm not gonna move the bed while you're laying on it, but when you go downstairs... You'll see. You'll see that. you come back up. The bed's in a new place. It's probably like, this is my damn room. Why do people keep sitting on my bed? Let me move it. Right. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and they say when he's upset, he can create a sour smell in his room. Like a ghost fart. Yeah. <laughs> and if, when he's feeling sad about his wife's death, people say he can let off a smell of a person who hasn't taken a bath for a while. Oh. And a psychic astrologer, Rita Friedman, said that old men without wives often do smell because their wife isn't there to remind them to shock her. Oh, that's so sad. It is sad. Also, why do we have to remind you to shower? <laughs> <laughs> fucking no. What the fuck? I, they're children. Yeah. Not all of you. Not all of you. We don't hate you as No, <laughs> we don't. <laughs> There's probably an angry listener listening right now that's yeah, not allowed on our Facebook anymore. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's like, see, they're talking about men again. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm not the ghost star. <laughs> <laughs> and he doesn't 
abide by his no smoking policy because you can still smell the scent of cigar smoke in his room and in parts of the hotel and on the second floor. Right, the policies don't apply to him. No, it's his hotel. Yeah. It doesn't matter who owns it now. It's right. still his. Right. And he, his apparition has been seen in rooms 210 through room 215 where he had stayed on the second floor when he was living. And a lot of people, even people that can't see him, can say that they feel his presence on the second floor and that he's always been a kind host. Aww. <laughs> I love that. Even, like, in the afterlife, he's getting five-star reviews. Right. <laughs> kind host. <laughs> and he's willing to talk to mediums and let his voice re- be recorded on EVPs. So, there's been paranormal investigations that they have recorded him. Oh, my God. And he's still concerned about the hotel, and he communicates about things that are concerning him that are going on there. <laughs> Oh, wow. So he's still like, no, like you didn't fold the towels right. <laughs> Truly concerned about it. Yeah, like, what are you doing? You right. need to run my hotel properly. Right. Yeah. Oh, my God. All right. And then we have young Billy. He is described as being friendly and gentle and not shy at all with the living. Okay. He's like, yay, I want to play with all the people. Mm-hmm. I don't care if you're alive or not. <laughs> So, he still does what he liked to do when he was alive, and that's be a very energetic five-year-old. Right. He runs up and down the hallways. That's what kids do at hotels, if you don't know. Mm-hmm. He plays in the basement. He plays with the living children on the second floor. And they they say they see him? Yeah. Oh, God. Kid ghost, man. Yeah. For some reason, this one doesn't scare me. Really? Maybe it's the joy yeah. I always imagine kid ghosts to be like Creepy. super mad yeah. that they're dead and they're a kid. I would have been. I would be mad too. Yeah. He'll reach out and talk to people in the world. He talks to psychics and investigators. His voice has also been recorded on EVPs. Wow. And there was an investigation done uh, by some paranormal investigators that they had on NBC 26 at one point in time, and they used like this weird little. Uh, computer image thing and then they look like stick figures so you can see one little tiny one and one grown one like one tall one oh. and one little tiny one so it, they think that that's William and Billy oh yeah running around doing stuff together at the hotel wow that that is crazy wow yeah. technology is so you can, crazy like, see their limbs moving and stuff oh my god it's very crazy yeah but um Agatha is the most active so she shows a variety of emotions and behaviors. Sometimes she's helpful. Sometimes she's mischievous. And she's been described as being very opinionated and not afraid. So this must be from when she's talking to psychics. Right. <laughs> she's been known to show dissatisfaction with decisions made by past owners and staff. <laughs> and in a fit of temper, um, one occasion... She did something to scare a staff member, but she's never done anything evil. But she has had tantrums of okay. some kind. I I would, too. Yeah. Why not? Mm-hmm. In 1988, she became angry with the hotel manager at the time, Barbara Pellner. And she shoved Barbara hard from behind while Barbara stood on the second floor landing. She lost her balance and fell down the stairs. Oh, my God. But, and it says, Agatha hasn't done anything like this since. So maybe she felt bad. She's like, damn, I didn't know I was that strong. Right. like, whoopsies. <laughs> she probably just wanted to scare her. And she had so much anger. That- right. She's like, I took that too far. Yeah, just a little bit. Uh-huh. She likes the living to see her and know she's there. And especially if they're in her room. On the third floor. In the lobby area or in the kitchen. And if you can't see her, you can smell the aroma of roses or flowers and in creating very cold spots. Hmm. So, you can go here and smell some roses. It's Agatha. Make sure she doesn't push you down the stairs. Yeah, watch the stairs. <laughs> While cleaning a mirror, one time a staff member saw the reflection of a woman in a 1930s maid uniform standing behind him. Oh. With her hair up in a customary bun of the time. Mm. What would no. you do if you saw a ghost in the mirror? I would flee. 
I, I would get gone. Yeah. Like, I'd be so gone. I just, I can't wrap my head around it. And if I actually see it for myself, I, I don't know. I wouldn't even know what to do. I think I would say hi. <laughs> hey. Hello. Is there anybody else we need to push? <laughs> I'll help you. Good God. <laughs> Another staff, staff member was alone one time at the hotel and was taking down the three boxes of Christmas decorations and was dragging them down the stairs. When she was making her final trek up the stairs to the store, storage closet, she saw to her amazement that the last box had been moved off the top shelf and was put r- down right beside the door on the inside of the room. One of the goats moved the box for her. Oh, wow. While the entity of William Carston or the unknown male entity might have been her unseen helper, Agatha was given the credit as it would have been in her job description if she was still alive. She's still working. She's still working. They're all still working. Oh, wow. They just love their job. Jeez. Agatha is thought to be the entity who sets off the alarm clock in the kitchen periodically to go off at midnight. Oh my gosh. The staff and investigation groups have all experienced this. Hmm. She also likes to play with the stove burners and turns them on and off. See, now that's just, um, I don't know. I feel like you shouldn't be doing that, Agatha. I think that she likes them because old-fashioned stoves weren't like that. Oh. It's something new. Yeah, but that is a safety concern. It is a safety concern, Agatha, please. <laughs> please. <laughs> and... When the dining room is open, Agatha gets her laughs by knocking over salt shakers and sugar bowls. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's so cute. She's just sassy. Yeah, for sure. I I love it. Mm Mm-hmm. And in the lobby area, guests have seen the apparition of Agatha. Hmm. And on the second and third floor, her apparition has been seen and heard sweeping. See, she's still cleaning. (laughs) The second and third floor hallways and causing other mischief. And when workmen are on her floor, she gets an attitude. She still doesn't like men. Yep, can't blame her. So, it's said that she dislikes men especially in the working class who she thinks have drinking problems oh she doesn't like men very who, specific she doesn't like men who drink so if you go there and drink and your work clothes she might do something to you right in 1984 when the hotel was being renovated workmen who were repairing the second and floor third floor areas um experienced her getting really upset with them and they were feeling really uncomfortable cold spots in their work area Hmm. and she was also hiding their tools (laughs) turning the tools on and off and playing with the lights and just generally being a pest i love that she didn't hurt them at all right she just irritated them good right (laughs) (laughs) that's the kind of ghost that i love i know you don't want to do anything bad but she's gonna mess with you you're just gonna fuck around a little bit yeah why What's not? stopping you? Nothing. She's doing so, her own thing. Yeah. Like, I was finally living my best life. Yep, she definitely is. everyone. I wish she would just stop cleaning. Like, just take a break. Yeah. You don't have to clean anymore. Yeah, don't clean anymore. In 1991, Tony Charles was redecorating a third floor room, and she heard someone walking <clears> in the <throat> hallway. So she opened the door, and she could see the footprints of an unseen presence in the carpet going down the hallway. Oh, my God. And she assumed that this is Agatha. Mm-hmm. And Agatha does open and close doors and um, the tops to those little chests, too. Like the treasure chest things. Oh, okay. Yep. She opens and closes them. She's a pretty strong ghost. Yeah. Yeah. But she died pretty young. That's true. So. And she had a lot of feelings. Right. That she didn't resolve mm-hmm. in life. So now she has to deal with them. Right. That's what happens. Resolve your shit. <laughs> Resolve your shit so you're not cleaning as a ghost. Yeah. Yep. And someone said that they had opened up a chest near the bathroom, the kind that has a sliding hinge lid that raises up, trying to get the extra comforter out. And no matter what they did, they couldn't get the lid to go down. 
Okay. It was just stuck open. She's hmm. like, no. <laughs> but they said as they were walking towards the bed and turned around, it slammed shut by itself. And then the lady then said, thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yep. So guests have also heard strange knocks, faint crying, and sounds. One guest in room 310 was awakened as a book dropped right next to her bed. Guests and staff have heard a woman's voice, and various investigators have recorded her voice as well. She's been known to appear so living people can see her in her room. One guest was sitting on the bed in room 310, and she suddenly felt very cold, and then she saw the misty form of a woman across the room and then disappearing into the wall. And one guest reported having seen a face of a woman in the corner of room 310. Say the Agatha's room. She just wants to rest, guys. Yeah. Yeah. And things such as old-fashioned gray hairpins have been found by guests and staff. Oh. I don't know how she's... Yeah, where is she getting taking her hair down? I don't know. (laughs) She's trying to relax at the end of the night. Yeah. I don't know how her ghost hairpins turn into real ones. Yeah. That's crazy. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And there is one other entity that they think there's somebody unknown. It could be a former hotel employee that still works in the basement, or Mm. it could have been somebody that was regularly drinking at the bar. But there's another unknown male entity that stays in the basement Hmm. and his shadow has been seen in the basement and occasionally elsewhere. And he's been caught on film by the paranormal investigators. So you can go on hauntedhouses.com and they have a Wisconsin ghost investigations thing. So you can see him on there. Other people say it might just be William Karsten wearing a disguise, but I don't know why he would be wearing a disguise. Right. Yeah, people say weird stuff. This guy has been seen by some bar patrons. They spied the white form of a man wearing a workman's or fisherman's hat, sitting at a bar stool, drinking beer out of a stein. When her husband saw her looking at someone, he asked what she saw. And when she turned around to show him again, the man was gone. Mm. Yeah. So, those are the three people that just lived there. And haunt everybody. Do you want to go stay in Agatha's room? <clears throat> you know what? I would just to see if this is real. And I feel like they're non-threatening. Yeah, they're all so nice. So I would feel like this is the place to go out and do something like that. Because I it wouldn't be something like I'm fearful of. Right. So, you know, I would be down. Yeah. It would be the worst. No. Right. That's all I got for today. That was good. I wasn't freaked out, really, and, um... No. I was like, oh, this might be the most, like, actively haunted, but it's not a scary one. Right. Yeah. Unless, I mean, ghosts in general scare you. I mean, they kind of do, just because of the fact that I can't see them, mm-hmm. but I, they sound very non-threatening and just in love with the hotel, so yeah. <laughs> as long as I don't right. fuck around, I feel like I'll be fine. Okay. All right, are you ready for some... No. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to bring you there. All right, let's do it. So, this is part one of the Jeffrey Dahmer victims. Okay. So, I am not going to do his story until the very last, and I'm going to dedicate two episodes to the actual victims, because, as you may or may not know, there's a lot, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. and um, their stories are way more important than who jeffrey was yeah so we're just gonna really focus on them awesome my sources are from usa today the sun news rnd find a grave the cinemaholic visica wisn the charlie project and people.com So, I want to preface this that it's going to be really graphic, it's going to be very sad, and um, there may be some times where I'm going to say you can skip it because of what is being done. So, I'm just going to let you all know. Okay. 
So the first one is Stephen Hicks. Stephen was described by family as a deeply caring person. He was also described by friends as a kindred, sorry, kind-hearted and compassionate individual who loved to help others and was always open to making new friends, end quote. Uh, his father, Rick, told a story about him during his, his childhood. Uh, Stephen was on a hunting trip and shot a rabbit and was as proud as he could be, and then he bawled his eyes out. Killing a defenseless animal was too much for him to bear and tugged at his emotional heartstrings. So Aww. it just showed how much of a, you know, like a caring person he was. On June 18th, 1978, after graduating high school in Coventry Township, Ohio, he was hitchhiking to a rock concert in Chippewa Lake Park, Ohio, about 25 miles away. And what people didn't know then um, that we for sure know now is that hitchhiking is a dangerous thing and should not be done. Yeah. Um, If you're doing it now, just get an Uber. Right. Don't be hitchhiking. Um, you don't know who is giving you a ride, and you certainly don't know who's getting in your vehicle. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen, while walking, was spotted by none other but Jeffrey Dahmer, and he asked if he needed a ride, and Stephen said yes. Uh, Jeffrey promised him that he would give him a ride to the concert and also share a few beers with him at his house. Uh, Jeffrey brought Stephen back to his father's home, However, it wasn't just for a few minutes to have a beer. It was never disclosed on what triggered Jeffrey's outrage, but one can assume that Stephen rejected Jeffrey's sexual advances. Mm-hmm. And Jeffrey then hit Stephen with a dumbbell before strangling him with that dumbbell handle. Oh, wow. Jeffrey, as well as, as we all know, was not a typical serial killer. He did not just stop at murder. Uh, Jeffrey then started to dissect Stephen's body in the basement in his father's home. After dissecting Stephen, he buried his remains in the family garden. Uh, But he wasn't done there. After a few weeks, he went back to the body. He dug Stephen's body up and dissolved it into acid where he then crushed the bones with a sledgehammer and buried them once again in the backyard. Where is he doing all of this? Um, so they had like a family, it was either the shed or like the basement. He mm-hmm. would, he grew, which I'm going to get into, uh, when we talk about him, but he grew up having this, uh, fascination with just like, dissecting things yeah and um he had like a little place to do that because you know as a kid it was nothing that people like raised their eyebrows at he was just like that weird science kid okay um so nobody heard from steven ever again and but his family never gave up on finding him he uh, his family employed a private detective and even helped the police uh, to the best of their abilities, but nothing came of it. Not until Jeffrey was in custody and confessed to killing him. Uh, Stephen Hicks' remains were not discovered until 1991, uh, but it was hard to locate him due to all the things that Jeffrey did to his body and how, mm. you know, the remains were. It was basically down to powder. Oh, wow. Um, and he was only 18 years old when he died. So, next is Stephen Tuami. He grew up in Ontongan in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. He worked as a short-order cook in a Milwaukee restaurant, and people described him as quiet but artistic. A classmate named Priscilla Marley stated, I was in art class with him, and he made a beautiful uh, lead-stained glass lamp that I can still remember. It was just beautiful. I remember he could do just about anything artistic, end quote. Stephen was last seen on September 15th, 1987. His family filed a missing report uh, three months after his initial disappearance. That part wasn't explained why it took so long. Mm. Uh, This gave no hope to Stephen's family, especially his father, Walter, who said he was originally told by... Uh, Milwaukee police that he could do nothing uh, because there was no sign of foul play. 
So they weren't as... I hate that. Yeah, they weren't as concerned. Uh, when Jeffrey was arrested and confessing all of his crimes, he claimed he didn't really remember the exact details on killing Stephen. However, he did disclose some things he did um, when he came to remember. On November 20th, 1987, Jeffrey happened upon Stephen at a gay bar. And for many, that is typically the meeting place for, you know, single people looking for a special person. Mm -hmm. Um, But Jeffrey is not normal, and he did have ill intentions. He lured him back to the Ambassador Hotel in Milwaukee. Uh, He was one of those creeps that rented a room at hotels to do, you know, the perverse things that he had planned. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jeffrey then drugged him and unfortunately sexually assaulted him. Uh, when Jeffrey woke up in the morning, Stephen's chest was caved in. His body was covered in bruises, and there was blood coming out of his mouth. He was just completely brutalized. Jeffrey looked down at his hands and saw that they were covered in blood and bruised. And I really don't know how he managed to remove the body from a hotel without being undetected. Right. But he did, and he brought Stephen back to his grandmother's house in a large suitcase. Uh, Jeffrey then, in the privacy of his poor grandmother's house, decapitated his head, dissected his arms and legs, and removed his bones from the body. Or, sorry, from his body. Then, as if that wasn't enough, he, sli- he sliced up the remaining body parts, which were all flesh, and placed them inside a bag before he fully pulverized the bones with a sledgehammer. However, Jeffrey ended up keeping Stephen's head wrapped in a blanket for two weeks and eventually boiled it down with a mixture of Solix, um, which is basically like an industrial detergent and mm-hmm. bleach. Uh, the purpose of this process was so that he could keep the skull as it re- removed everything else. Okay. Uh, so please be, war- be warned that I am about to say something uh, really gross. Uh, so he kept the skull in order for him to be able to masturbate into it. Um, but Stephen's skull had to be disposed of as it was badly damaged from the acid bath. So he didn't keep it after a few times of doing Mm -hmm. that. Uh, Stephen is the only murder victim in Milwaukee for which Jeffrey was not charged because of lack of evidence. And he died when he was only 24 years old. Next is James Doxter, and he went by Jamie. This one is especially tragic. Uh, Jamie was the youngest out of all of Jeffrey's victims. He was young, but already six feet tall. He was half Stockbridge and part Oneida. Uh, He was the oldest of four children. He also liked to play pool, ride his bike. However, uh, it was known that he was getting in trouble for cutting school You know, just regular kid stuff, I guess. Uh, He lived with his mother in Tampa, Florida for some time. His mother, Debbie Vega, stated, One of my my son's favorite sayings from the Bible was, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. I will never feel that way about Dahmer. He sits there so calmly and explains all the things he did. He knows what he's doing, end quote. So, on January 16th, 1988, he was waiting at a bus stop right by a gay club in Milwaukee. Jeffrey then spotted him and offered Jamie $50 to pose for him nude. Jamie fell for his trap and was lured back to Jeffrey's grandmother's house, and what seemed to have started as a pervy inquiry for money turned into just dark and disturbing events. Jeffrey strangled Jamie to death. Afterwards, he did the same as he did to Stephen. He decapitated, dissected, and pulverized his bones. He confessed to Jamie's murder, but sadly, police was weren't able to find any trace of Jamie's body. And he did die at the age of 14. That's terrible. Uh, next is Richard Guerrero. So, Richard was a Mexican-American man who was born in 1965. He was a family-oriented. He occasionally babysat his two-year-old niece. Even though he was involved with the law at times, he always called his mother um, 
you know, first, whenever he got in trouble, mm-hmm. she was a source of comfort and a source of direction for him. His sister, uh, Janie Hagen, immediately knew something was wrong and even went as far as assuming that the worst had happened when he went missing in March of 1988. Janie stated if he wanted it to be like that, he would have at least called my mom and let her know everything was okay instead of leaving us in the dark like that with my mother praying to God every day that the good Lord will send her son home, end quote. So if anything, he didn't go missing because he wanted to, because he would have called his mom right. at the very least. Right. Uh, Janie filed a missing person report and she felt that the police didn't take her seriously because her brother was Hispanic. Uh, Richard's family was not going to let this go uh, so they hired a private investigator who then defrauded them of their money. Oh, my God. I don't understand how you can do that to a family who's no. already going crazy, not knowing where their family member is. It's completely so sick. So many people take advantage of missing persons' families, though. It's crazy. Yeah. It's so sick. Uh, Rich's father, who worked at a golf course, lost much of his life savings due to the act of fraud. And this really just made me want to punch a wall because they're already going through so much. Meanwhile, Richard's mother was at home praying that her son would finally come home. Jeffrey, like many other, many other encounters met Richard outside of a Milwaukee bar. He then offered him money to pose naked and they went back to his grandmother's house. Jeffrey drugged and while Richard was succumbing to the drug, Uh, Jeffrey strangled him with a leather strap. He defiled his body by raping it after he had already died and then dismembered his body. Jeffrey confessed to Richard's murder, but police never could locate his remains. Uh, Janie spoke in Spanish at the trial, calling Jeffrey Diablo, el puro Diablo, which means the devil, the pure devil. She's not wrong. Unfortunately, he died at the age of 25. And he was Jeffrey's only Hispanic victim. Next is Anthony Lee Sears, a.k.a. Tony. Anthony was born on January 28, 1965, and was living in West Allis, uh, Wisconsin. He was described as kind-hearted, generous, and a person who loved to help people. He was a type of person who made friends with zero effort, which I wish I was like that, because... <laughs> Those type of people, I'm like, damn, I'm so jealous of you. Uh, He was also noted to be an attractive man and had dreams to become a model. His mother, Marilyn, said he loved having his pictures taken. But in the meantime, Anthony managed a Baker Square restaurant in Milwaukee and was planning to celebrate his recent promotion to manager uh, with his family over Easter dinner, but he never showed. Mm. And that wasn't like him. He was saving money to leave Milwaukee, but unfortunately never got the chance. Since he often ran off with his endless amount of friends, he wasn't immediately reported missing. But after four weeks, his family's casual worries turned into real concerns. His mother stated he never showed up, so I figured he just went out to celebrate with his friends. A few days later, I called and just got his answering machine, end quote. He had no plan to get off the grid, as his mom stated he had plans to get married to his girlfriend as soon as he had enough money. But on March 25th, 1989, Anthony met Jeffrey at La Cage, a gay bar in Milwaukee. And apparently Jeffrey had no intention on doing anything terrible on that night, but I guess he just couldn't control himself. At bar close, Anthony approached Jeffrey, and Jeffrey was not able to walk away from him as he was charmed by him and his attractiveness. They were super comfortable talking to each other, and they decided to go back to his grandmother's house. And I'm not going to go into the sexual details on what they were doing, because at that point, they were consenting adults. Mm -hmm. None of our business. Um, Jeffrey loved having somebody... uh, Or loved having someone around and not having to pay for it and not having to force him and wanted that to last and instead of being a normal person and saying hey i'd like to call you tomorrow he decided to drug him and then strangle him to death jeffrey placed anthony's body in his grandmother's bathtub the next morning before decapitating his body 
since he was so attracted to him, he wanted to keep a piece of him as a uh, sick and twisted version of memorabilia. He decided to keep Anthony's skull and his genitalia. He placed the genitals in acetone and then stored them in a locker. On top of all this, Jeffrey tried to flay Anthony's skin off of his body, but that didn't end up working. He decided to dismember, dissolve in acid, crush his bones, and dispose of his the remains. After Jeffrey was arrested, Anthony's skull and genitalia were found in his possession, meaning he moved around from place from place to place with them. Oh, wow. The rest of his remains were never found, and it was been said that Anthony's bodies were the first to be kept as memorabilia. Unfortunately, Anthony died at the age of 24. Um, next is Ricky Beeks. Ricky often went by the alias of Raymond Smith. When he came across Jeffrey, he was living with his half-sister who took him in after he'd been released from prison, and he had a 10-year-old daughter who lived in Rockford, Illinois. He It wasn't unusual for him to be gone for long periods of time, so when he went missing on May 29, 1990, people in his life were not entirely alarmed. It was rumored that Ricky was a sex worker, and that's how they met. But that's not confirmed. It's just something that's been put out there. Okay. Uh, Jeffrey lured Ricky back to his apartment and gave him a drink to relax. However, it wasn't just a drink to take the edge off. It was drugged, which left Ricky, Ricky defenseless and unable to resist Jeffrey's attack. Jeffrey strangled him to death, took pictures of Ricky's body in sexual positions before dissolving his body in acid. He kept Ricky's skull and placed it next to Anthony's skull. He died at the age of 33. Edward, a.k.a. Eddie Smith, is next. Eddie's um, sister said he was called the... I don't know how to pronounce this one, but the Shaiki? Shaiki? Uh, because he frequently wore a turban-like wrap around his head. And I looked that up, and basically it just means you wear a turban around your head. Okay. So, um, he had big dreams of becoming a professional model. He was part of loving... Uh, a loving and supportive family. He was reported missing on June 14th, 1990 by his family due to a strange thing that they encountered. His sister, Carolyn received a call thought to be from Jeffrey Dahmer in on March of 1991, stating that her brother was dead. Hmm. And I'm like, who's who else would call, but the killer. Yeah. Eddie was last seen leaving the Phoenix bar in Milwaukee after meeting Jeffrey. Jeffrey had his apartment at this time, and so they went back there together. When Jeffrey was arrested and police were going through his apartment, photographs of Eddie's deceased body was uncovered. Police couldn't find any part of Eddie's remains, as Jeffrey stated he couldn't retain any part of his body. Carolyn became a powerhouse in her brother's missing persons case and in the trial. In the courthouse, Eddie's brother... J.W. Smith read the following statement in court. Ed was raised in a Christian home where he learned how to be a loving, trusting, respectful human being. He inherited all the blessings that a family structure had to offer. The greatest of those blessings was love, end quote. Sadly, Eddie died at the age of 28. Next is Ernest Miller, a.k.a. Ronald Marquez Miller. Ernest Miller was an artist at heart. He graduated from Milwaukee High School of the Arts at West Division, then worked for a few years before going to college. He was enrolled in classes at Roosevelt Arts College in Chicago and hoped to become a professional dancer. However, he never had the chance to fulfill his dreams. Vivian Miller, his aunt, stated he was a talented dancer. He was singing and performing when he was younger and used to sing at church, end quote. David, a former high school teacher of Ernest, stated he was such a gifted dancer, an amazing vocalist, and he just started putting his foot in the pool of acting, and so he was truly a triple threat. So that year, his senior year, he didn't find 
out until the end of that of the year that he got accepted into Roosevelt in Chicago. That was the last I heard of Ernest, and then the and then that summer I saw him on the news as one of the victims, and it broke my heart. End quote. On September second, nineteen ninety, he came to Milwaukee to visit relatives, but he happened to meet Jeffrey in a bookshop on North Twenty Seventh Street. Jeffrey pursued Ernest because he was physically attracted to him as he was in good shape from being an active dancer. Jeffrey offered to pay Ernest $50 for him to be able to listen to his gut area and to his heart. Jeffrey wanted sexual favors, but Ernest refused that. Jeffrey, in turn, gave Ernest a drink laced with two sleeping pills and one. Once he was vulnerable to Jeffrey, he slashed his um, corroded artery and resulted him to bleeding to death. He then posed Ernest in a sexually explicit positions, took Polaroids of him, transferred him into his bathtub, and dismembered his body, all the while he was occasionally kissing Ernest's severed head. But it only gets worse from here. He decided to keep Ernest's heart, biceps, and pieces of his leg tissues and wrap them in plastic. He would later eat those parts. He boiled the remaining flesh and organs with the soleax and turned it into a jelly-like substance, and he severed his head and put it in the fridge. The remaining flesh was painted and enameled. At the trial, his uncle Stanley Miller stated, There is no place in a civilized society for anyone who shows no regard for life. I am not for the death penalty, but you are the perfect candidate. End quote. He lost his life at the age of 24. I'm going to end here um, to give you guys a break. <laughs> um, so I left off on seven and there's a total of 17. Wow. So we will get into the next part uh, next week. All right. So brace you did yourself. a great job. <laughs> Thank you. A lot of heavy stuff to talk about. Yeah, there is a lot. And I don't want to. Uh, just lightly go over them. I know right. that a lot of the family members were really upset after seeing the Netflix show come out. Right. And a lot of them kind of had the same comments that they just felt like it was about Jeffrey and it was just really sick for, of them or sick to hear everything all over again. It was almost mm-hmm. like re-traumatizing them for profit, basically. Right. Yeah. So... I think it's just so important to talk about the actual people that lost their lives. I agree. Great job. We love you guys. We do. Bye. Bye. All the Sins of Wisconsin was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Fallon and Mims. Thank you so much to all of our listeners, supporters, friends, and family that continually allow us to do what we love. If you love our show as much as we love you, please give us a glowing rating and review. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to see what we are up to and email us your sinner tales at allthesinsofwi at gmail.com. Episodes of All the Sins of Wisconsin are available for free wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't Don't forget, forget, we we love you. you.